chapter 4, and if you have a Bible from the back, that starts on page 740. Luke will be preaching through the entire chapter of Daniel 4. We're just going to read the first five verses together. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as we engage here in Daniel chapter 4, this is one of the most remarkable stories of the Bible. And uh, you'll see why in a minute when you see what happens um, to King Nebuchadnezzar. But what we have in this chapter is the most powerful king in the ancient Near East converts, has faith, expresses trust in the one true God. This is incredible. This is the king of Babylon, the, the power uh, empire of this time. And this king converts to the faith of, in, in God. This is an amazing story. Nebuchadnezzar himself writes it. Uh, you see, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And what this book records is, is essentially Nebuchadnezzar's God story. We do this from time to time as a church where someone will come up and we call it a God story and we'll interview them or they'll just share about what God has done in their life. Uh, other times you might hear that called a testimony or something like that. What we have in chapter 4 of Daniel is the most powerful man in the world expressing how God got a hold of his life. It's fascinating. And then when you see how, how God did it, it's even more uh, remarkable. Um, what I want you to know, though, as you look at this, is um, though the details of how Nebuchadnezzar's uh, faith in God came about, though those are unique to him, what Nebuchadnezzar experiences is really what most people who come to faith in God experience. And here's what I mean. I, I've, I've sat with people, heard their stories, uh, watched baptisms, done baptisms, had a lot of different people share their story, right? If I came to you and I said, hey, um, would you tell me, how, how has God worked in your life? For those of you that are followers of Christ, how has God started to get a hold of you? For the vast majority of you, I would hear the same story. The details would differ. The names in the story would differ. The specifics would differ. But it pretty much goes like this. You're living your life everything's great, you're hunky-dory, things are going well, you don't need God, you don't need spirituality, you don't need Jesus, you're fine. You're a good person, everything's great. And then God takes your legs out from under you. He drops a boulder in your life, right? And, and it's, it's sickness, it's a job loss, it's a relational conflict, it's a wayward child, it's on and on and on it goes. Something happens and it gets your attention. Right? Prior to that, you were thinking, I don't, really, I, don't, I don't really need Christianity. Christianity is just a crutch. I don't need a crutch. And then God breaks your legs. And all of a sudden, you need a crutch. And, and, and your story, probably, for, for those of you that are Christians, most of you, you'd have some version of that story. 
You thought everything was great. God drops a bomb in your life, and it gets your attention. It helps you see you weren't quite as sexy as your shirt. You weren't as great as you thought, and, and you need some help. And that's exactly what happens to us. That's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And here in this chapter, he tells his story. So let's pray before we dig into it. Father, thank you for the way you work in our lives. God, thank you for um, the way that when we are proud and full of ourselves, you humble us. And God, it almost always really hurts, but it's your mercy to us. Rather than letting us stay in our pride and stay in our sin, you give us grace and mercy through trial and difficulty. And so for those that are in the midst of that now, I pray they would find hope today And for all of us, I pray we would have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us through this text. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to kind of work through the story and then pull out some lessons uh, at the end. But let me just remind you a bit of the background of what's going on in this book. Uh, Josh and Matthew and Brett, a couple of the guys on our team that are preaching from time to time, they have spent the last three weeks kind of helping you understand what's going on in Daniel. And what they helped you see was that the people of Israel are in exile at this point in the nation of Babylon. Babylon was the most powerful nation in the world. Uh, Some have said that Babylon at this point was probably the first civilization to be over 200,000 people which is significant. They had conquered Israel in a succession of three different sort of waves of battle and things like that in 605, 597, and 586 BC. Nebuchadnezzar was uh, leading that charge to uh, overcome uh, and and take uh, Israel into captivity. The the final uh, exile, if you will, the final fall of Jerusalem took place in 586 BC. And you can read about it in uh, 2 Kings 25. The book of Lamentations is written all about this. Uh, This was the judgment of God on his people because they didn't obey him. He he did something to get their attention, and the person he used to do it was Nebuchadnezzar. Now, just because God used Nebuchadnezzar doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar was a servant of God. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a vicious, angry, harsh man. The kind of man that would build a statue to himself... And then if you failed to bow down before, it would throw you in a fiery furnace, right? That's what we looked at last week. Do you know any people that would do that? I mean, like, you know some arrogant, prideful, mean-spirited people. That takes it to, like, a whole other level, right? And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar was like. And you see his brutality uh, in 2 Kings 25 when you read about how he conquered Jerusalem. So, for instance, here's some things he did. They sieged the city for two years. There was a famine going on, but they attacked the city and the city gates and the city walls for two years. When they finally got through, they, uh, he killed the king's children in front of him, so made the king watch his children be killed, and then gouged out the king's eyes before he ex- took him to Babylon. So that's the kind of guy he was. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to make you watch your kids die. Then I'm going to gouge your eyes out and let you live which is worse than just killing it, almost. They burned everything at Nebuchadnezzar's request. They burned the temple. They burned the king's house. They burned all the other houses. They just set it all on fire. Before they did that, they took all the valuable things, all the gold, anything of silver or value, took it out of the temple, all these things that had been consecrated to be used to worship God. They defiled that. They burned the whole city. They kill all the priests, kill army officers, kill all kinds of people, Nebuchadnezzar was behind that. 
And yet we see in the book of Daniel God's faithfulness to continue to pursue people even who hate him. Right? And so throughout chapters 1 through 3, we've seen that God has given this influence of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to speak truth into Nebuchadnezzar's life. And even though it doesn't seem like he's hearing it, even though he'll kind of have these flashes, he's still a brutal, arrogant, prideful, wicked man. Nebuchadnezzar rules Babylon, right? In the scripture, Babylon is the symbol of everything that's wrong with the world. Uh, the actual nation of Babylon is in modern-day Iraq, and uh, Saddam Hussein fancied himself to be like the next Nebuchadnezzar. That gives you a flavor. So imagine if, if God did something to save and rescue and convert Saddam Hussein. And that's what we read in Daniel 4. Do you get the magnitude of that? He writes this in his own words, the scripture written by this vicious king. Chapter 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, or verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. The wars had ended by this point. This is probably 20 or 30 years after uh, the initial, after what happens in chapter 1. Wars have taken place. Uh, They've ended. He's now begun this project of rebuilding the city, All these construction things take place. We'll look at a little while at that. And he says he's at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. That word prospering has with it the idea of flourishing like a tree would flourish, filled with fruit, and he's doing really well. He's doing great. He doesn't need much. And God moves in. Verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. That word alarmed means terrified. And uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream that troubled him. Here he has a dream that terrifies him. And when you see what the dream is, you'll see why he was rightly terrified. And so Nebuchadnezzar does what he often does. He says, i got to find an interpretation to this dream. He had done this in chapter 2. You may remember that he had gotten together all his magicians and all the wise men and all the astrologers and all these people saying, hey, I had this horrible dream. Tell me what it was. Interpret it for me. None of them could do that. And so uh, Daniel, uh, who he gives the name Belteshazzar, Daniel comes in and is able to do it in the power of God. That's what happens in chapter 2. Now, when he has this dream again in chapter 4, you would think that he would go straight to Daniel. He'd say, I don't need these magicians and astrologers. They can't get it right anyway. Just give me Daniel. But I think what you'll see is the dream is so obvious. When you, when you hear what the dream is, you'll, you'll, you'll see this is so obvious. He didn't really probably need an interpretation. It's probably more that he didn't want what he knew it was going to be. And Daniel would tell him the truth. He didn't want that. So he gets all the guys together. This is what you read about in verses 6 and 7. In verse 7 it says they couldn't give him an answer to what it was. And the reality is they probably just wouldn't. (laughs) They probably could, but uh, I don't want to do this. Because remember, this is the kind of guy where if you upset him, he kills your kids in front of you and rips out your eyes. Right? So you you tread lightly here. I don't want to say anything he's not going to like. Well, finally, he brings Daniel in. He recognizes in Daniel uh, the spirit of the holy gods is how he calls it. He sees there's something different. There's something unique about Daniel. And he brings him in, and he says, I want you to interpret this dream. And then he tells him, here's what the dream is. It starts in verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. 
The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. The other translations call that a messenger, that watcher, a messenger, an angel. An angel comes from heaven in the dream. And he proclaimed, verse 14, and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Now, scholars debate what that word periods in verse 16 means, uh, but the, the majority view is that this means years. So this is going to happen for seven years is what this is about. Verse 17, the sentence is, this is still the angel speaking, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, uh, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Why is all this going to happen? So that you would recognize there's a God and he's in charge and you're not him. That's why this is all to take place. Now, you can see why this probably began to trouble him. Because there he is, he's flourishing like a tree. He's doing great. Everything around him is growing. Uh, one of the things that, that you may know about ancient Babylon, and this happened under Nebuchadnezzar, was the construction of the Hanging Gardens. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, where his wife was from a place uh, that had trees, and he lived in Iraq. I feel that sounds familiar. So it would be like if, if, you know, Molly from Ohio, where they have trees, it'd be like if I tried to build her something so that she could experience vegetation, right? And so he builds this just remarkable thing, this whole irrigation system for it. He's a fruitful tree. And you notice, did you notice the transition uh, in verses 14 and 15? Did you notice it? Right? It, first it was talking about the tree. Top, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip its leaves. Uh, let the beast flee from under it. Leave the stump of its roots. And then it transitions. Did you see it in verse 15? It goes from it to him. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts. Let seven periods of time pass over him. It's clear that this is about a person. And so you can see why Nebuchadnezzar, this fruitful man who's like a strong tree, is terrified. Something bad is going to happen to him. And so he calls Daniel to say, hey, will you interpret this for me? Well, after he tells this, we see in verse 19 that Daniel, who also went by the name Belteshazzar, that, that was the name Nebuchadnezzar had given to him, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. They terrified him. Daniel hears this, and he's terrified, because he knows, I'm going to have to tell the truth. This, guy, this is not going to go well. And, he, and Nebuchadnezzar calms him and says, hey, no, really, I, I want you to tell me. Tell me the truth. And he says at the end of verse 19, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Just marked here by the compassion of Daniel. It's a very godly compassion. 
Here's Daniel, whose relatives and friends and family were likely killed back in Jerusalem. Whose nation has been ransacked. Whose God has been defiled. Whose temple has been burned. And you'd think that Daniel would be going, yes, God's going to get back Nebuchadnezzar finally. And he says, I wouldn't wish this on you, king. He's developed a relationship. He's developed a care. He's developed a concern for this powerful but broken man. He says, I don't want this to happen to anybody. And uh, Daniel confirms his worst suspicions. He says in verse 22 that the tree is Nebuchadnezzar. He says, it's you, O king, who've grown and become strong. But God owns a lumber company. And God's coming for you. And you are the tree, and you're going to get chopped down. Now there's hope, Daniel says. There's hope in this because it doesn't say that that Nebuchadnezzar would be uprooted. The tree would be uprooted. It says it would be cut down. So there will be a stump left, which means that after uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes to a point where he's willing to look up and acknowledge who God is, that God may and will restore it. There's hope in this. But Daniel then begins to plead for Nebuchadnezzar. He says in verse 27, in light of this, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel says, king, repent. Don't, don't, it doesn't have to end this way. Don't go there. Don't do this. This is what a good friend does when a friend or a family member sees someone making a train wreck of their life and headed away from God's blessing and into his judgment says, stop, turn around, right? He says, break off your sins. He's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, either you break off your sins or God will cut you down. Let this be a warning to you, Nebuchadnezzar. Look at him. He says, there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. It could happen. Turn around. You were rightly afraid. You were rightly terrified. You're going to give an account to a holy God. He's coming after you. Repent. You ever heard a preacher or seen a preacher on TV or something, and they seem pretty hot under the collar, a lot of fire and brimstone and hell, and you better repent. And you gotta, You've seen that? And, uh, you know, not really my style most of the time. And the, you can question the effectiveness and things like that. I don't, I don't know. But, but you have to admire somebody that's going to stand up and go, you're going to face the judgment of a holy God. Repent. Cut off your sins. Turn around. You have to appreciate that. And Daniel does that very thing here. And it's strange because Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He says he's terrified. He's alarmed, right? He can't sleep over this. He's bringing all this counsel. Then he gets what it is. And you'd think he would be so agitated he'd do something about it. But the next day he wakes up and everything's fine. 
and the next day he wakes up and everything's still fine, and the next day he wakes up and everything's still fine, and, and after a while, God hasn't brought this about yet, and Nebuchadnezzar begins to get comfortable and begins to go, well, maybe God changed his mind. Maybe he realized, I, I am a good guy after all. It says in verse 28, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar, but it didn't happen right away. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, 12 months go by. He was so alarmed initially, so agitated by this pronouncement of God's judgment initially, but, but it just kind of, the urgency of it just wore off and 12 months go by. God is so patient with this man, this man who has destroyed his people, who has destroyed his temple, who has blasphemed his name. He's patient with them. This reflects the heart of God that does not wish that any would perish. This reflects that heart of God. He's patient with them, but his patience doesn't last forever. And his patience is meant to lead us to repentance, not to harden our hearts. It says in Ecclesiastes 8, it says this, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Judgment's coming! Yeah, but I woke up today and it felt kind of the same, and I woke up the next day and it felt kind of the same, and I, well, whatever, you know? God must be happy with me. And so I will do whatever I want. That's not how it's supposed to work. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2. He says, uh, after listing a whole bunch of ways that people engage in sin, he says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Some of you, you're stuck in some sort of sin. You've been doing it for a while, and your heart is getting harder and harder and harder to it, and you've been thinking, well, God hasn't done anything about it yet. I must be experiencing His grace. You might be experiencing His judgment, because in that, your heart is getting harder and harder and less and less capable of repenting and of turning. And you're presuming on His kindness. It's meant to lead you to repent. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. So he's up there, verse 29, walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now listen, this isn't just some small-time guy going, what I've done is pretty impressive. What he's done really is impressive. There's this quote from a historian, uh, George Rawlinson. says, Modern research has shown that Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest monarch that Babylon, or perhaps the East generally, ever produced. He must have possessed an enormous command of human labor, as nine-tenths of Babylon itself, and nineteen-twentieths of all the other ruins that in almost countless... that in almost countless profusion cover the land are composed of bricks stamped with his name. Get that? So even if you look at the ruins, if you get 20 bricks, 19 of them say Nebuchadnezzar on there. Built by Nebuchadnezzar. All over the place. He appears to have built or restored almost every city and temple in the whole country. He did an impressive work. And yet he's just full of himself, right? Who's he even talking to? Right? This doesn't appear to be a speech to the nation. He's just talking to himself. He's the ultimate me monster. Right? Any of you know Brian Regan? 
He's a comedian. And he has this great bit where he talks about being a me monster. These are the people who in every conversation have to top your story. You know, he's talking about how he told a story about how he got two wisdom teeth pulled. And someone was like, wait a minute. I got four. I got eight. And they were impacted. And they, right? And like, well, I'm never going to do that again. Right? And, and it's like, it, these are the people that's like, you, me. You, you, me. You, you, me. And this is how Nebuchadnezzar is. He's got, no, no, you, me. He's the me monster. It's about him. Look, it, is this not the great Babylon that I have built for my glory? It says, while the words were still on his lips, God was like, oh, yeah? Me. says verse 31 while the kings were still while the words were still in the king's mouth they're full of voice from heaven o king nebuchadnezzar to you it's spoken the kingdom has departed from you you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will the idea here is that if you insist on trying to be more than a human, like he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm like God here, right? In chapter, in chapter three, he wanted to be worshiped, his statue, right? If you, if you want to be more than a human, God's going, I'm going to make you less than a human to show you who's really in charge. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. So you see this. He became literally like an animal. This is part of the weirdness of the story, you think? There is a, uh, there is a, a psychiatric condition that, that people have studied and that people have seen and experienced called boanthropy. It's a, a psychological disorder where a person believes himself to be bovine. It's a cow. Right. We almost called this sermon from divine to bovine. <laughs> this is documented. You can read accounts of people who have this, and it sounds exactly like what this is describing. He just, God says, I'm just going to let you go nuts. This is a PR nightmare, right? For the, I mean, the press secretary says, ladies and gentlemen, the president's not available today. He's grazing in the Rose Garden. <laughs> and this is, right, this is a problem, and, and but listen, you exalt yourself, God will humble you. You raise yourself up, God will cut you off at the knees. You say, I'm so strong, I'm so great, look at me, aren't I wonderful? Wham. That's the way God works. And listen, he does it out of grace. Because he knows that the worst thing for you to do is to exalt yourself like that. God loves you too much to let you be that stupid for that long. He's going to intervene. He's going to do something. It's part of his grace. Well, the lesson sinks in. It says at the end of the day, so after seven years, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to be. There seems to be an order there that when you look up, when you acknowledge who God is, your reason is restored. You think more clearly. 
Your mind is renewed as you focus on who God is and what he's done. And Nebuchadnezzar does this. He lifts his eyes. He blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then here's what he says. And notice this. This is the king who was saying, aren't I great? Look at my kingdom. Isn't it the most amazing thing ever? And what he realizes is that in comparison to God, his kingdom's nothing. Nothing. So he says in verse 34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Implication? Mine doesn't. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And I like this here. Nebuchadnezzar here is saying, I can't, I can't say to God, why'd you do this to me? He was right to do this to me. It was wise of him to do this to me. It was grace for him to do this to me. He is the king. I'm not. There is a God. I'm not him. That'd be a great thing for you to say to yourself every day. There is a God. I'm not him. He realizes that. His reason returns to him, and his, the glory of his kingdom and the splendor and the majesty of it is returned to him, as, it, as Daniel had prophesied. And it says in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. There's his God story. It's a great story. I think there's some timeless principles that we can pull out of that and that we can learn from this. All of them have to do with, with what he experiences. What he experiences is salvation. Now that's a word, if you don't have a church background, that may not make as much sense to you. And so what we mean by the idea of salvation is that all through the scripture, in a lot of different ways, God rescues his people. They are in a difficult or a, a painful or a harmful situation God rescues them. They're, they're saved, right? If, if, a, if someone is drowning in a pool and you jump in and you pull them out, you've saved them. They've experienced salvation at that moment. And salvation dominantly in the scripture, it refers to a number of things, but dominantly has to do with this idea of, of sinners who are rebelling against God, who are going against him and are drowning in the pool of their sin, being pulled out by the grace of God. That's what salvation is. That's what I think Nebuchadnezzar experiences here. So there's three things to learn about salvation and what what it is from this story of of Nebuchadnezzar's salvation. Here's the first one. Salvation is possible. If it could happen to him, it can happen to anybody. This is the least likely person. Right? Can you imagine? Who's the guy in Iran? Ahmadinejad. Is that his name? Imagine if you got a report on your Facebook account, and it was like real, that he became a Christian? You go, no. You wouldn't believe, you wouldn't believe it. You go, no way. Could never happen. Happened to him. Some of you, you think, well, I, I've, done, I've done too much wrong. I've, I've sinned too much. And, and God, I mean, he knows what I've done, and, and I, there's no way I could be forgiven. You haven't done as bad as him. Have you conquered God's people and burned down his temple? There's, there's grace. Salvation is possible. If God can do this for this man. right? We know from Scripture that the powerful and the wonderful and the beautiful are, tend to be less likely to be saved. Because they 
think they're great. They think they're wonderful. They have cool ringtones. <laughs> Just kidding. Right? I mean, when you think you're great, when you think everything's wonderful, when you're, right? Like, you don't need God. You don't. God goes after the lowly. And yet here, in this remarkable grace, this guy who had tried to destroy God's people, God rescues. It's amazing. Salvation's possible. I don't know who you're praying for, who you're thinking about, who you're hoping that God could work in their life and going, oh, it's just fruitless. I've tried to talk about God. I've tried to talk about Jesus. I've tried to love on them. Their heart just gets harder. You know, I'm giving up. Don't. Because you never know what God might do. Salvation's possible. Here's the second thing is salvation attacks pride. It attacks pride. We saw the exchange there. Is this not my great kingdom? Whack. Right? And, and what does Nebuchadnezzar say at the end of verse 37? Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Salvation is a direct attack. God is directly attacking. In order to rescue us, he, he's attacking our pride. Now, pride takes multiple forms, right? We're familiar with the superiority version of pride. Look at me, aren't I wonderful? The, there's also an inferiority part of pride. Look at me, aren't I awful? And so the superior person is thinking about how great they are, and no one's as good as them, and no one's as wonderful, and the inferior person is going, no one's as bad. God can never do anything for me. I'm so awful. And, and the point is, in who's, the, the point is, in both cases, they're thinking about who? Themselves. That's why it's been said. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. But it's this preoccupation. That's what pride is. And in this form, what we see is the superiority part of it, thinking of yourself higher than you should. And this is really what's at the root of all sin. It's at the root of why we are so self-independent. Uh, it's at the root of why we don't trust God. It's at the root of why we worry. It's at the root of why we're afraid. It's at the root of why we hold on to bitterness. Because in all of those things, we think we deserve better. Salvation is an attack on pride. And the main obstacle here for Nebuchadnezzar to experience God was his pride. And God just had whittled away and whittled away and then whittled away and then bam. The irony to me is the times when people will say, here's this horrible thing that's happened in my life. How could God do this to me? I deserve better. Look at this life that I've built. And God is, God is going after that. Maybe part of that reason is to help you see you don't deserve it. You need him. Salvation's about an attack on pride. God is always confronting our pride. C.S. Lewis wrote brilliantly about this. And here's what he says. He says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. Right? So, so listen, Nebuchadnezzar, up to this point, he's had encounters with God. God helped him interpret a dream. God showed up in a fiery furnace. He's had some acknowledgement of God, but he has not yet said, this God is immeasurably superior to me. So he doesn't know God at all. He says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. 
That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? Pause there a second. Think about that. What Lewis is saying is this idea of pride does not just affect those out there. It doesn't just affect the pagans. It doesn't just affect the sinners. It doesn't just affect the wicked. It affects everybody. And some of the worst culprits of pride, some of those who are quite eaten up with pride, you look at them and you go, you're quite full of yourself, can say they believe in God and appear religious. How is it that religious people can be the worst offenders? It doesn't make any sense. Here's what he continues. I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to him and out of it get a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow men. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. And God attacks that. God confronts that. God loves us too much to let us stay there. So what are the places in your life where you're standing on the roof of your life and saying, is this not blank which I have built? Is this not a wonderful family which I have built? Is this not a great small business which I have built? Is this not a great reputation of honor in the community which I have built? On and on it goes. Now now listen. There are legitimately things you do that are good and admirable and and worthy of being applauded. That's fine. What, What Nebuchadnezzar did in building this city is remarkable. It is. But what was it about? It was about him, for the glory of my name. Right? It's one thing to acknowledge that, that you have done some good things to raise a good family. It's, it's something to acknowledge that you have done something to, to build a business, or on and on you go. But if it's all about you, then just look out. Because the Scripture says that God opposes the proud. That's an active word. He is opposing constantly against the proud. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. So you can go that way a while. You can think that you're the exception to the rule. Watch your knees. Salvation attacks pride. And then finally, and I think this is probably my favorite one, favorite lesson here, is uh, that salvation is when God gets personal. It's when God gets personal. It's it's from when God goes, uh, not just uh, you know about him, but you know him. Not just you can tell some truths about who he is, but you've experienced him. Salvation is when God gets personal. And that's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Go back, if you will, to chapter 2, verse uh, 47. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had had a different dream about the statue. No one could interpret it. Uh, Daniel was able to by the power of God. And Nebuchadnezzar experiences this. And it says in uh, chapter 47, verse 47, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar is genuinely impressed 
with God's power. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar's a polytheist. He had all kinds of gods for all different kinds of things. And he goes, wow, your God's amazing. But you notice what he didn't say? He didn't say, my God. It's your God. That's really cool. Would you pray for me? I, what your God can do for you is amazing. Well, it's not, it hasn't become personal yet. And then in chapter 3, he throws the, the, the boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into the furnace because they won't bow down to the statue. They won't pay homage to that. And he throws them in the furnace, and they survive it. And Nebuchadnezzar, it says in chapter 3, verse 28, answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Verse 29, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? It's, it's your God, Daniel. It's their God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what happens when Nebuchadnezzar actually experiences salvation? Chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And praised and honored him who lives forever. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Right? It got personal. It wasn't your God or their God. It wasn't his parents' God. Or my church's God. Or my pastor's God. Or my spouse's God. My God. Have you experienced that? Some of you, I hope, are on the journey there. I hope God is using this. Have you, have you experienced it? That's, that's where we want you to get. It, it, we don't want you to live some sort of faith vicariously through your friends or vicariously through me. We want you to know God. And the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to make that possible. That's why there's so much imagery there, even in the crucifixion, that helps you see you get personal access to God. Right, So you don't have to go through a priest. Jesus says you can pray, Our Father. You can call God Father. How much more personal is it than that? It's why Jesus Christ, when he dies, the, the, the veil of the temple is torn in two, giving access to the Holy of Holies, the place that in the Old Testament the priest could go one, the high priest could go once a year. That veil is torn. You can go to God with boldness now because of the blood of Jesus. Has it gotten personal? Do you know him? Not just about him. Not like, could you pass a Bible quiz if we gave you one? But have you had an experience of the heart where you see that there is a God, you are not him, and he is worth giving all of your life to? Have you had that? you're nodding you have and for those of you who have for those of you who are christians have you had that in a while or is that something you had back in camp in high school is that something you had back in college is that something you had before we had kids and got so busy have you experienced the power of this personal god lately god is eager to make himself available to us through jesus if we will humble ourselves 
I find for me, the, the indicator, the indicator for me as to whether I'm just sort of preaching about God and learning about God versus preaching with and for God or learning and getting to know God himself, right? Do you get the difference? Because listen, you can be a pastor and just phone it in the same way. You know that, right? Do you know that? That's why you should pray for me. Because listen, I, I got enough giftedness that I can put together a talk. But you know what that is? Is this not the great sermon that I, right, whack. I don't want that. And, what, and the indicator to me is, is how, um, it, it basically has to do with prayer. How eager I am and how energetic I am in talking to God. Because it's there that it gets personal. It's there that it gets intimate. Like I can do the song and dance when people are watching. God knows. And when I'm there with him, it gets personal. And the great news is that he would pursue someone who's continually rebellious like me. Just like he pursues Nebuchadnezzar and he's pursuing you. Have you experienced him that way? Salvation's possible. It will attack your pride. And it will get personal. But you, like Nebuchadnezzar, will be able to say that I praise and extol and honor him. He's worth it. Has it gone from lip service to life service for you? Are you pretending to be king or are you submitting to him as king? There's great joy there if we will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have access to you because of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he became like a beast on the cross, suffered in our place so that we could know you and be set free. God, I pray for those who are like Nebuchadnezzar was at the beginning of this story, flourishing and great and not in need of anything. And God, I pray that in your mercy you would humble them. God, I pray for those who are experiencing that humbling process now and pray that they would see it as from your hand and as a good thing and as a, as a mercy to them. And God, I pray that all of us would be able to have a personal encounter with you that changes us, that fills our hearts with praise for you. In Jesus' name, amen.